Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're talking about the business of sport and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael O'Keefe of Teneo PSG. Michael, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Kieran. Now, Mick and I travelled to Abbottstown last week to interview John Delaney, Chief Executive of the FEI, which we'll play for you in the second half of the show. You'll hear John talk about the FEI's finances and its stadium debt, a recent controversy over unpaid wages in the League of Ireland, player development and the World Cup just passed in Russia. But first, we'll start with our roundup of some of the major stories of of the week and Mick we're going to begin with the GA and a bumper weekend on the hurling <coughs> front uh, last weekend both in terms of attendances and in terms of the, the matches and the drama that unfolded Yeah look I, I think it's been a spectacularly good season for um, for hurling in particular and the GA I think have got an awful lot right in terms of the structures of which they were rightly criticised I think in the past about some archaic uh, fixture fixture calendar I think what we've seen here with the with the hurling is two spectacular games but I think you know the, the benefit and the, the financial benefit to the GA can't be underestimated either and I think they could be on for a record year here. Um, yeah, let's go through some of the numbers. So 125,000 people attended the games over the weekend uh, which we estimate is about 3 million uh, plus to, to, to the GA. When you throw in on top the, the replay in um, Turles which is a sellout. Another million quid? Another million euro to the bottom line. So not a bad week's work for the GA and that's before we get to uh, all our final and, and, and semi-final stages in, in, in football. Um, one of the other things I suppose that uh, that, that the GA were criticised for was too many games in Dublin. We all know Dublin is, you know, booming as a city. Um, and it's the centre of the universe. Maybe, it is the centre of the universe, absolutely. But apart from that, we do need to look after the other planets as well. And and you, you, you got. I, I think one of the spin-off benefits of the the, the hurling championship has been games in places like Ennis. Um, more games in Cork etc which has had a local uh, economic impact I, I'm surprised and always have been surprised that there's nobody out there who can actually put a estimate number on this stuff um, there's been a couple of universities and academics have, have had a go at it Well you no- have a figure here from Sheffield Hallam University they did a, a study a number of years ago showing the likely impact locally of a major sports event. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think you can do a one-size-fits-all because it's very different a Donegal, uh, a Mayo playing an all-around football final and Dublin versus Cork, for argument's sake. People staying over, people flying in from, from, from other parts of the world to matches. So I, I, I think it's very difficult to have a, you know, you multiply mm. the, the, the match ticket by two or for every person that goes to the game, it's €100. Euro. Sure. Um, we do know from talking to the Dublin Publican Association that they reckon 30% is the uplift in the pub's 
in in the vicinity of and around uh, Crow Park, the O'Connell streets and stuff of this world, um, and even down into just over the river, that those pubs get a huge spin off out of the uh, out of the and, big games. Am I right in saying that Gill's Pub, which is very close on Jones's Road, close to Croke Park, is actually owned by the GA? That's, yeah, and it only opens on match days. That's yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's my understanding. Right? So they have it every which way, <laughs> almost right. Okay. Mick, just take us through the numbers there from that Sheffield research. Yeah, so so their <clears throat> their view on this is that it, for every um, uh, customer, it's basically a hundred euro spend per head. I, I I personally question that. You know, you could if Dublin are playing mm. in Crow Park, is everybody going to that game spending a hundred euro? Um, maybe they are, maybe they're not. If you're coming up from from Mayo or Donegal, or you're flying in from overseas. You've got bed nights, you've got dinners, you've got all that other stuff that has to go with it. So I I think there's a bespoke piece of research required on this before we can get any kind of proper estimate. The RFU would argue that a big <coughs> a big England match in town is worth millions to the to the Dublin economy, and you can't really you can't really uh, argue against it because you can up to twenty thousand high net worth English rugby fans coming into town uh, it's probably sounds like a piece of work that a, that a consultancy well, of the magnitude that Teneo PSG was, might be able to undertake funny you, were, funny you should say that uh, but it is something that I, I, I think we might look at because there there is nobody doing this correctly I think if we got a, an economist um, and potentially even a media partner if you know one um, who could uh, who could look at this properly Okay, I'll have a word with my bosses. Um, now, a bumper, uh, a bumper season for hurling. What about football? Because that's undergone some change as well. We have the Super 8s and again, a lot of games going to various uh, towns around the country, but it hasn't quite ignited in the same way as hurling. No, but I think um, look, there's, there's a couple of things. There. The hurling championship has been spectacularly good. I think the football championship has been good and I think what you had is the second round of the Super 8s really showed what the Super 8s can do. Kerry going to Clonus. You know, you had some really interesting matchups that have never happened before in 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 provincial towns. Now mind you, there weren't many Kerry <coughs> fans in Clones. Well, there's not many Kerry fans in Kerry, so they don't even go watch themselves down there. So, like, that's that's not the best, that's not the best illustration. I think the feeling was that the hurling would be front-loaded and the football would be back-loaded. As it's happened, the hurling has just been spectacularly good, but it is one of these things as well. I, I, hurling analysts, I've never heard a hurling analyst say he's seen a bad game of hurling. It's like they're all on a, some kind of propaganda uh, mission to say how amazing every yeah, game every in hurling was and how this game is the greatest game that's ever been played. Now, Michael, I have to ask you about the Lee Miller controversy because yeah. a testimonial match is being, uh, was organised for Turner's Cross. Then the suggestion came up that maybe Parky Cueve could be made available and the GAA tied itself up in knots uh, deciding whether or not this could happen, whether it contravened the rule book and all of that. We finally had a decision. The GAA has decided to open the doors of Parky Cueve for this testimonial in September. Of course, Lee Miller uh, dying at a very young age, only 36 and leaving behind uh, a um, you know a wife and young children. Yeah, look, I, I think in what has been a pretty good year for the GEA, I think there's been two kind of blemishes and I think Newbridge was a bit of a mess and I think Lillian Miller's situation has been a, a, a mess. And Newbridge being the Calera Mayo Newbridge, match. sorry, yeah. So the, the not, you know, mm. changing the, the, the venue... Um, my understanding of this is that what happens is the GA being such a big organisation with multiple uh, subdivisions and county boards that a lot of decisions are made without the 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 been by been passed by executive or the senior people within the organisation. And the first time they see these things is when they come to light in 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 the media. Um, I think in their defence, they've managed they they rectified both mistakes. I think they realised Newbridge was a mistake. Um, and by Wednesday, it was back in Newbridge, which was the right decision. And I think with the Lee Miller situation, I think it was the right decision to make sure that that game took place in Parky Creeve. Mm. It wasn't a good, 
week for the GA. Um, there is a bit of an undercurrent here. I think politicians jumped on the bandwagon and got a little bit of you know, political mileage out of it. A um, little bit of an undercurrent, you know, back to the bad old days of a little bit of soccer GA. Um, Cork County Board would have a reputation with quite a conservative uh, county board as well. Um, a bit of a mess, I think. I think mm. in fairness, GA, it, the president John Horn is quick out of the blocks to, to get out here and, and put out the fires but that really isn't his job these things shouldn't be happening in the first place so I think it's more of a systems failure than a, a PR failure if that makes any sense Alright and we wish the organisers well with that and now let's talk about uh, Sport Ireland a new national sports policy was uh, launched Yeah so you know when it comes to um, sports funding in this country like we've been criticised for, for not investing enough in sport I think there's anybody can make a, a strong argument for uh, investing in sport and the health of the nation that is a very easy argument to make the more healthy the population is the less uh, strain on the health system etc when you look at sports funding in this country it falls into three buckets you've got participation encouraging more people to be active elite and then you've got uh, facilities and infrastructure I think what for the first time in, in my lifetime the government have taken uh, and Sport Ireland um, have looked at a long term strategy where you know similar to what they're trying to do in health and housing is to say okay well what might this look like over the next 10 years um, and they're looking at, at doubling the, the investment in sport which I think should be warmly welcomed um, one Is that enough? I mean, it doesn't like over a decade. Yeah, I, I, and I think this this relates particularly to um, participation. So we're going from 100 and, uh, 111 to 220. Yeah, and, and this is particularly relevant, related to, this isn't capital grants, so this is related to uh, participation initiatives and elite. Um, I, is it enough? It's it's better than what it, what it is. Um, I, 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 one major issue I see, um, well, there's two major issues I see. One is that the, the evidence is there, and we've done research and others have done research, that um, middle-class areas uh, in cities uh, um, are, tend to be healthier and middle class people tend to be healthier because they're, they can invest it. their parents bring kids to sport etc we need to over invest in, in so called deprived areas to make sure that kids are active the other thing and the vehicle to do that is um, the GA well what's happened over the last 100 years is that the GA there are a few in the FAI have, have trained and, and got our kids active what, what we need now is, 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 is physical education in schools that, that kids are doing uh, activity every day in school and um, unfortunately what we have is a situation where the primary school teacher is expected to be the geography teacher the home ec teacher the maths teacher and the English teacher and the physical education we need, we need dedicated mm. people who can get kids active in schools because that's where you don't have to rely on the parents and you don't have to rely on the facilities they're there and they need to be Nick, active One thing that kind of screams out at me uh, funding for women in sport uh, set to double to two million euro two million euro I mean that's a miserable amount it's a women in sport programme I think it's a specific programme so that doesn't include the investment in the likes of ladies football camogie um, the, the FAI got a significant bump it's Athletics. a pretty miserable amount of money I think I I I think I I think that is just a particular program that it's it's an education piece rather than all the money that's invested in women in sport is my understanding. Right. Okay. So uh, I know you like to be controversial, but that's <laughs> so this plan, this plan, good, bad, or indifferent from your point of view. Um. I, I, I welcome it. I think any increase in, in funding should be welcomed. I think um, doubling the, the, the pot, I think, has to be a good thing. I think um, our elite athletes, we haven't touched on that, I think, deserve the best of the best. And you will go Well, they do, especially as uh, this week we found out that the uh, the women's hockey team who've done as proud, they're into the quarterfinals of the World Cup, and they're part funding their own uh, their own participation in the team. Yeah, and, and minority sports such as hockey, they'd no sponsor till Sofco jumped in three three um, three months ago or four months ago. Um, and the and men's hockey team, which quali- who 
qualified for the Olympics, the last Olympics, they had to self fund as well. They had to no, and 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 the best of the best and the elite athletes deserve better. You and I were out in Abbottstown last week. There's an amazing facility out there in the making, but we need more. Um, and we need these people need the best facilities, the best support, and the best funding in order to to perform at the highest level. Okay, um, all right. Let's switch to uh, football. And uh, Chinese investors pulling out of some of the major uh, yeah. some of the major investments um, that they've made in European football over the last number of years: Aston Villa, AC Milan, etc. What, what's going on, Mick? So it looks like the Chinese government have uh, have, have have put a block on uh, what they deem to be reckless investments in European football clubs. And um, what this means is that some of the investors, like Tony Xia in uh, Aston Villa, are now pulling out of their um, of the football investments that they have. This is going to have a major impact on four or five clubs that already have huge Chinese investments, like of AC Milan, Atletico Madrid, Aston Villa, as we just already mentioned. But I think more importantly, this um, overseas investment by Chinese investors has inflated the the, the football. Football market in in Europe, and I, I think it's a it's it's a, it's going to cause a big change in terms of ownership and also the amount of money that's coming into European football. Okay, Mick, we'll leave it there uh, in terms of our roundup. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, um, Mick and I will be talking to FEI Chief Executive John Delaney. Back in a few moments. Only twenty nine percent of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, last week, Mick and I paid a visit to FEI headquarters in Abbottstown to shoot the breeze with FEI Chief Executive John Delaney. It was on the day that the FEI published its financial statements, and you'll hear John address the issue of unpaid wages in the League of Ireland and a proposal for a fund to prevent such issues reoccurring. That issue has uh, since moved on, and Mick and I will have a chat about that later. You'll also hear John Delaney talk about the Association's financial health, and it's stadium debt. Uh, but I began by asking him for his reflections on the World Cup in Russia. John Delaney, welcome to Inside Business. Uh, it's great to be here in Abbottstown uh, to meet and chat about the finances of the FEI. But the World Cup has just passed. Uh, a lot of people saying it was the best World Cup ever. I don't know what your view was. I presume you were out there. You're an executive member of UEFA, I know. I didn't go up for much, but I went out for the final and we're out for the opening game because there was FIFA congresses and there was UEFA meetings around the opening match. I thought it was a great World Cup. Really good. I think um, Russia hosted it absolutely brilliantly. I think VAR was a great addition to the World Cup. Um, it brought a lot greater clarity to decisions. I think it brought a lot greater responsibility. Is the video the, review system? Absolutely, yeah. I think it brought a responsibility on the players that previously wasn't there before. I think it was about 25, 26, 27 penalties, whatever it would have been. I think that was a really great addition to the tournament. doesn't mean it's perfect, but I think it was a great addition to the tournament. And I think it was just a, a really good World Cup. Plenty of goals. You go to the final... Um, I thought Croatia played really, really well. Just, just, just looked a tired team that had three, three extra times, a couple of penalty shootouts. An unfortunate own goal gave away a penalty, obviously. Um, so, all in all, for a tournament that didn't have Italy in it, that didn't have Holland in it, that Germany were a USA disappointment. Yeah, it. USA did make that Germany were a disappointment. That Brazil got knocked out in the quarterfinals along with Argentina as well. I thought it was a really, really good tournament, and um, very disappointed we weren't there, obviously. Yeah, no, John, actually, I wanted to t- chat to you about that because obviously we fell at the last hurdle in the playoff uh, against Denmark. Very disappointing uh, for the squad and, and the fans. What would a, a World Cup appearance have been worth to the FEI for Ireland? Um, I think that the first thing to say, because this is always kind of 
gets into headlines what money you've lost. We never do budgets ever based on qualifying for a major tournament. We've never done it, um, nor will we. But our aim as an organisation is always to qualify for a major tournament, always. Um, it all depends on the costs, obviously, of going to that particular country. It depends on the bonuses played out to squad members and, and, and what will come of that. But your estimate, I think, to, to be honest, would be a profit maybe, you know, three, four, five million. I think that the biggest loss, though, not getting to a World Cup, is actually getting the grassroots and the, the game. Like, you know, the game gets a real boost. When you go to major tournaments, uh, all the kids want to, everybody wants to follow Ireland. We saw that in France in 2016. The country gets behind the team. And we had internationally for ourselves, uh, we've had a vacuum since November um, uh, when we were beaten by Denmark. Yeah, only had a few friendly internationals. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, right, the American game was a lovely occasion because it was John O'Shea's last game and we, we got a late goal to win. But the real stuff, um, the real stuff doesn't start till um, September and pick their home games in October, which would be obviously having Wales and Denmark. So it will almost have been a year since we were at home for a significant home game. And that's probably the greatest loss in one way, Gareth. But you know what? We've got to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and um, get these Nations League games in, uh, going in, in September, October. We've got Northern Ireland in a friendly in November. And the draw for the Euros takes place in Dublin on the 2nd of December. There'll be 140 million people who will watch that live. And then that sets out our path um, to qualify for Euro 2020. And many people will actually travel to Dublin for that draw? Oh, there'll be a, a lot of people because there's a, there's a large number of, of UEFA events around the draw. So first of all, there's a top executive programme uh, of UEFA being hosted. That, that's the 55 different countries coming in to, to work on strategy. The draw will have 650 or 700, 650, 700 people in the convention centre. Um, and UEFA are holding their board meeting as well in Dublin around the same time. So a lot of business will come to Dublin, but more importantly, a lot of eyeballs. So 140 million people watching Dublin, watching the draw. I think that'll be uh, in the convention centre. I think that'll be a great, uh, that'll be a very positive day. And I think Garrett Maher, our communications manager, has always said to me that the big one of the biggest sporting events that will ever come to Ireland will be the Euros. And if we can qualify this in 2020, in 2020 when we, yeah, we host four games, four games, uh, three group games, one round of sixteen. And if we qualify, two of our home games will be in Dublin. Now that's a great prize for Irish football, a great prize for the FAI, and a great prize for the players and the management as well. And John, is that the closest we're ever going to get to hosting a tournament like the European Championships, the Senior Championships? We did apply with Scotland before. We did many, many, them. many, many years ago. I think the focus of the organisation at the moment is first of all having the draw in the convention centre which is a which is a big event next year we host the under 17 euros uh, in Dublin Waterford and uh, and Longford that's 9,000 bed spaces for for, for the city um, particularly out in City West Tech Track one of our sponsors that's a big event for us to host um, we all know how lucky our under 17 team was in England last year obviously or this year with the, with the penalty shootout against Holland so it's a big tournament for us to host and then successfully completing the Euros here in Dublin, the four games, hopefully as one of the participating teams. They're the, the focus for the organisation over the next couple of years. Can you just take us through at a high level uh, the finances of the organisation, turnover, just explain to listeners how, how the organisation is run? Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the organisation back in, in 1996, I think the turnover was about 7 million euros. Uh, for 2017, even though we didn't qualify for a major tournament, our turnover was 49 million euros, which is it's um, the second biggest ever. And our debt on the Aviva Stadium, um, first of all, the Aviva Stadium cost 410 million euros. Our contribution was 210 million, including government aid, which meant then that we had to put 95 million euros into the stadium in probably the greatest um, financial crisis that, that that ever hit this, this the world and mind this country. But we found that 95 million, and at one stage our debt on the stadium was 70 million. 
Um, today we've announced that it is now below 30 million, that next year in 2019 it will be below 20 million. And at our AGM, we'll outline to our members in August, it's just coming, uh, how we can be debt-free by 2020. And that's something that we'd be, we'd be very proud to have done. But we've had to do that, reduce our debt, as well as developing the game. And we've been able to do that. And can you explain the, the revenue structure in terms of the numbers from a sponsorship perspective, TV, where the money comes from in terms of just how that, how that 50 million is, is, is made up? Yeah, it's a mix between um, television revenue, UEFA funding, which is significant, commercial partners, which again is significant. There's government funding, local authority funding, and then um, match generation revenue. So last year, for instance, our season ticket holders was the best ever, 16,000 season ticket holders. So we're not reliant on one particular aspect, um, like maybe the association would have been many years ago. It's now a mix of UEFA funding, FIFA funding, uh, centralised television money, uh, commercial revenues, uh, obviously match day revenues, government funding, local authority funding as well. So it's a good mix. To touch on the, the, the League of Ireland or the, the Artricity League as, as it's called, in, in your view, what's the ideal ownership structure of the league for question one? And question two, from a, a club perspective, we've seen what Rovers have done with Ray Wilson, you know, the kind of investor slash fan-owned club. What, what do you think is the ideal ownership structure for a club? Yeah, I, th- I think the, the first question is, is, you're asking me, how do you think the league should be run from, yes. a, from a strategy yeah. perspective? I think going back many years ago, uh, the league clubs used to run the league itself, and, yeah. and it was a disaster. It, it just didn't work. It just didn't work. I think the clubs accepted that. The FAI made a proposal maybe 10 years ago or so to run the league and let the clubs run themselves, but the FAI run the league. And at the time we took over the the, um, the running of the league, the collective losses of the clubs in one particular year was €7 million, Euros, which is a lot of money. So therefore they were clearly over-trading. Therefore we had to... Bring in licensing, obviously a bit of tough love, call it what you want. Um, and it was, it was, they were difficult and, you know, continue at times to be difficult. There are difficulties in there. But overall, the running of the league by the FAI in general and the clubs concentrating on their own affairs in general has been good. The, 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 the figures support that. Along that journey then, um, we've put it to the clubs that they can go back to running the league themselves. They can... Um, obviously leave it the way it is or else we do a hybrid system whereby we run the league with the clubs and I think it's the general agreement in principle is that that's the best that's the best strategy so there's been lots of discussions with the clubs Michael Cush the barrister was involved at one stage Delight are currently doing um, questionnaires you know trying to get some feedback from the clubs and from the association and I think really a deadline should be December of this year that we set out the path the future path of how the, the, the league is run I think the preference would be that it is a joint responsibility, that uh, the clubs want more um, visibility on television deals and commercial deals. Not a problem. Delighted to do that. They want more of an operational involvement in running the league as well. Not a problem. Delighted to do that. But that requires a system whereby both both the FAI and the clubs are partners. I'm a big supporter of the clubs. Of course, there are issues sometimes around clubs. That's not only in Ireland. That's around Europe as well. Uh, there are some great news stories around the league. I mean, Drogheda United's new stadium is a great news story. Um, the, the redevelopment of Daly Mount Park, when the specifics are announced, is a great news story. The building of a Munster Centre of Excellence down in Cork, uh, specifically where Cork City will get priority usages, is again a great news story. And within those, there are, of course, are difficulties as well. But ultimately, I think you've got to judge it on where it was to where it is, is certainly the League of Ireland is in a better place from where it was. I and mean, even our coefficient 
um, will now move from being 39th in Europe to 35th. That's progress. That is progress. And I can see the crowds, the attendances are up, but I can also see the issues. And I think from, from the FAI's point of view, getting clarity with the clubs by the end of this year, um, what structure we run the league in going forward on a strategic basis is certainly what I, what I would encourage. Would you, would you think it's, a, it's a, that, that hybrid model of, of, of more um, responsibility for the clubs, but obviously the FAI would ultimately uh, be at least 50% with a veto in terms of running, running the league with a kind of a 10-team structure? Would you think that might be the way it'll end up? I, I think a good balance between the association of clubs working together in a strategic way um, to bring to bring the league forward, and that to me would be obviously you know a joint ownership model. Percentages and that can be can be discussed, and representation can be discussed. I think the ten team Premier has been good for both the Premier League and the First Division because it means the First Division is um, has actually got some bigger clubs playing in the First Division, which means um, there's obviously more important games than, than maybe people would have thought in the past. And the Premier League's been really, really, really good. And we've seen the inward investment then because you get Peak Six wanting to buy, uh, buying Dundalk. Um, there's a new owner in Shelburne, obviously with Andrew Doyle coming in. Lee Power has invested in, in Waterford. And on a regular basis, we get inquiries from people who want to invest in the League of Ireland. And there's two particular reasons, or three probably. One is if you've got a love for football, that's, that, that's, that's, that's there. So you must have a love for the game and an interest in the game. Secondly, there's four places in Europe in our Premier League. So a four out of ten is a quite a high percentage to get into Europe. And European money is increasing, as we know, both at qualification level and at solidarity level. And the other side of it is that these underage structures we've brought in place, the under-19s, the under-17s, the under-15 National League and the under-13 National League, which starts next year, gives the club a, a, um, a player, elite player pathway. It also embeds the club stronger in the community than previously would have been. And there's a business model around a five-year strategy of having the best players coming through. Obviously, in terms of <coughs> selling some of them on to, 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 to England, we've seen that with Graham Burke yeah. recently, but also in terms of certainty around revenue. So that those two or three particular things have attracted inward investment, and that can only ultimately, if they're the right owners, uh, be good for the league in general. And yes, John, the league continues to generate negative headlines. Unfortunately, Bray Wanderers yep. not able to pay their wages. Uh, Limerick not able to pay their wages. And a, a lot of you know, players frustrated at the fact that they weren't being paid for six or eight weeks or whatever the case was. And you've suggested a, a fund, uh, a joint fund with the PFAI, the Professional Football Association of Ireland, whereby 300,000 will be set aside, half from each side. And if those kind of situations arise again, this fund uh, could be tapped. But PFAI have come out and said, well, hold on, we weren't consulted. Um, and, you know, we don't have that kind of money. And essentially it would be players paying for their own wages because uh, membership fees are, are a big uh, income earner for, for the PFAI. Um, and they've also suggested um, that uh, perhaps, uh, you know, you and your salary, uh, that perhaps you should pay some of it. <laughs> well, the, the first thing is... Um Along the, the, the running any professional league, there's going to be some issues, both positive and negative, either be a performance on the pitch, off the pitch activity, infrastructure development. Um, if you look at the industry, first of all, over the last three years, 17, 16 and 15, the turnover of the clubs collectively was 15 million. So it's a growing industry. I think the average salary was about 5 or 5.6, million euros for the players. And every player has been paid over the last three years. And yes, there were delays in Bray's and Limerick's situation, which is not good, not something we want to see, but we immediately got involved with the clubs and every player is now paid up to date. And 
they are the the the, the, the simple facts. Um, quite simply, the association's view is to work with the clubs to ensure all players' contracts are honoured. And put quite simply, there's no way um, the FAI would have announced any fund, any joint fund, unless another partner was aware of the fund. So you're saying the PFAI actually was aware they were of aware. this fund? Right. So why why would they have gone public? Because I have a newspaper clipping here from the Times Ireland where uh, they were, I don't know, you know, it's been on broadcast media as well, uh, where they're saying that they weren't consulted. Listen, Frank Gavin, if you wanted to talk to Frank Gavin, he'd give you the detail. But and he's an ex-PFAI uh, official absolutely, himself. Absolutely. And, and he and I, when he was running the PFAI, would have worked closely with him on standard players' contracts. He did a lot of good for the league in his role and a, good, a lot of good for the players. But I mean, I'll just say quite, quite simply, without going into any broader detail, the PFAI were aware of that fund and they were aware of the quantum as well. John, there's a perception out there um, that perhaps the FAI isn't as well run as, let's say, the, the GEA or the IRFU um, and that it's a bit accident prone. Um, how would you respond to that? I think every role has, every major organisation has its challenges. I, I know we do an awful amount of good work. I mean, the, the, the finances that we've outlined here to you clearly illustrate that. The Aviva Stadium and our, the role we play in delivering that clearly illustrate that. The academy you see outside for the international team to train on clearly illustrate that. We've got 200 employees now, uh, a development officer in every part of Ireland uh, dealing with the clubs and at grassroots and, and at community level. Uh, we're working on a new high-performance plan, um, having already implemented many other recommendations through the years. And like I said earlier, there's been groundbreaking changes at under-19 National League, under-17 National League, and under-15 National League, and under-13 National League. These things never happened before. And we have a player development plan, and we've got school boys football moving to calendar season from February to, to November, which is, is coming in as, as mandatory in 2020. And so I do would, you get an unfair rap? I think, look, uh, it's not for me to comment on that. I think that there is a really strong, committed volunteer and workforce in Irish football. And you should judge anybody under 90 minutes on the pitch. Is Irish football in a better shape now, you know, from what it was 10 years ago to what it is today? I mean, the answer to that is clearly yes, because I've outlined why. But that's down to a lot of good work from a lot of people, uh, both executively and a voluntary base in this organisation. John, can I ask you on the the perception of the GA and the RFU find it easier to tap into corporate Ireland? And is that does that prove the, 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 the need for international success? And I mean, success being qualification for, for terms to really, you know, to, from corporate boxes, sponsorship, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think traditionally, um, if you go back to what I said earlier, that the association back in 1996 had a turnover of 7 million, now it's 49 million. And I think the mix of what we of what, of our revenue coming from UEFA, be it FIFA, be it uh, commercial revenues, which have increased hugely over the years, that's an indication that that, um, that Ireland sponsorship, Ireland Business Inc. is getting behind the organisation. And we have a job of work to do on, on our 10-year ticket strategy, our premium ticket strategy, which we'll announce at the AGM. It, it was probably new, new turf for the FAI coming into the opening of Aviva. We didn't have a huge corporate client customer list. I think we've proved over the last number of years that we have, we have done that in the sponsorship level. And we'll have specific plans which we'll roll out in the autumn as to how to bring the business community into uh, our premium ticket, uh, into our premium ticket um, portfolio, and that's an important piece of work for us. I think we've made good inroads, mm. but traditionally that wouldn't have been the FAI's um, background. I think it, traditionally people would have said 
that Irish soccer was a working class man's game, that the J was very much embedded in in um, oh in, in the community and yeah. whatever it would be, and that 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 the rugby was very much you know schools and business oriented. Yeah, yeah. But I think we've demonstrated if you if you grow your turnover, which we have up to forty nine million euros, we, we must be tapping into the business community, uh, and in there there certainly is a good support for the business community. Can we get more? Absolutely. And just on the, and you know, I don't know what the, you know, obviously TV money is so crucial in 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 football, whether it's here or international or, or Premier League and so on. And we've seen a lot of articles here. And just to get it, it's just a view. Um, is there a threat there? Do you think with um, the Amazons and Facebooks and Apples and whatever looking at at sports rights and and we've seen a kind of a exponential growth in TV uh, money um, and it's kind of capped off. Do you think we've hit TV money peak? Is there a threat that multiple different channels, what's your view on the balance between free dare and, and pay-per-view when it comes to selling rights? I know there's a lot of questions in there, but just at, kind of a, at a very high level in, 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 in world football, is there a threat that that big chunk of, of, of revenue is, 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 is under threat? Um, I think the, the best thing for, for, for all the federations in, in Europe, and I'm on the board of UEFA, obviously elected a, a year and a half ago, um, and many years ago, we were one of the countries who brought the concept to UEFA of centralised TV rights. So in other words, um, when the draw was done many years ago, if we got France as a seed number one or Croatia as a seed number one, depending on the draw, you could get um, four or five million euros in television monies if it was France or Germany or somebody like that. And if you got Croatia as a seed one, you got 50,000 euros. So the role of the dice determines your budget. So we, we would have been one of the leading countries at the time to come to UEFA and say, look, why don't you, like the Six Nations, centralise it? Why don't you go to the market, like the Champions League and the Europa League as it is now, sell the lot and then do 55 individual deals. And that brings great certainty to our budgets because we know every year, irrespective of who we get in a draw, what our television revenues will be, except for the domestic game. And that's that's a big positive. From seeing in UEFA, I mean, t- television revenues are strong. There is a a change at some stage in how games are viewed because young people like clips. They like to be on the move, certainly. And the traditional way of watching a game in your house for 90 minutes is probably more of our era than the younger kids' era. But there's no evidence to, to say that television revenues are dipping in any way. Um, and I would see that at UEFA level. And from the FAI's perspective, there's certainty of revenues because UEFA is a very strong organisation. It has very strong reserves. And any commitments it makes to the association, you know, um, are, are absolutely, um, you know, bankable and deliverable. And do you think, John, just one more question. Do you think that that, that brand, you know, sporting organisations have been damaged with... Um, We've seen in FIFA where the keys were taken off and handed to handed over, and the whole reconstruction of of, of FIFA under um, Infantino. We've had Olympic scandals. We have all sorts of things. Do you think that sport, as a, 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 a from a from a organisational perspective, has been damaged over the last couple of years, here and 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 abroad? I, I think every part of, of Irish life is is now examined even deeper. Um, you know, you only have to, to look at how social media works now. The abortion referendum, you know, the 70% of voter for abortion was was um, was seismic in terms of a change of attitude in Ireland. And that's kind of probably reflects uh, a change in how things are viewed in the world. So everything is examined a lot more closely than it was. 
in there, I can made a point that there are criticisms, there'll always be that, but there's also good things being done. And I think uh, the job of the sporting organisation is to um, deal with the criticisms if they're there, uh, adjust your feet, but also to continue to, 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 to drive on. And, and from our point of view, from our point of view, would be to get participation higher, to get more volunteers involved, to get infrastructure improved. At, at, at global level, though, with the, the FIFA stuff and just all that yeah. kind of cloud of scandal negativity, it, you well, know. Those things obviously didn't help at all, but Infantino's leading a new FIFA, Alexander Sheffron is leading a new UEFA, and out of some very difficult situations, you know, some great change comes, and... I think you've got to play the long game on those things, to be honest with you. I think we can all get caught in the instantaneous moment. I'll keep coming back to the football example that, you know, oh, that was a bad free kick or he gave away a corner kick or it was a bad tackle or whatever it would be. But did the player do his stuff over the 90 minutes? Did he do his stuff? And when someone gets the opportunity then to change, to come in to change an organisation, which Infantino is doing and Sheffron, Alexander Sheffron is doing, as I can see at close hands, that becomes the new story, the new story. And to answer your question, kind of probably straight pretty straight at the end is that those difficulties don't help but they can't consume you either you've got to get on with it john we have a business audience uh, listening into this podcast or at least we hope we have anyway (laughs) (laughs) how would you describe your leadership style um my, my leadership style is actually very much done around around this room and i would have direct reports we work every monday morning there's an executive meeting of direct reports we put the issues up at the table and then I let the guys or whoever's in those roles get on with their role. And then we do every week, we just reassess, has that worked? Um, do we need to, 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 to change? But it would be very one of actually working together with the direct reports because when you run an organisation that has a turnover of almost 50 million euros with 200 staff, has a huge grassroots involvement, um, you have to delegate. You have to delegate. And when you've got a board that you obviously report to and obviously... UEFA duties as well. It's pretty full on, so you have to be able to delegate. And how much of your time is actually taken up by UEFA? Because you're an executive council member now, aren't you? Yeah, that 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 comes really in in waves. For instance, like in December, January, very very little. Um, but sometimes it comes then with obviously Irish duties because you're going away with the team, or there's UEFA congresses, and then there's probably I think four or five board meetings a year of the of the of the UEFA board, four or five. But I'm also chairman of the Youth and Amateur Committee of UEFA and vice chair of the Women's Committee in UEFA. So it brings different duties along the way. I think the biggest thing for me, to be honest, the most time-consuming thing for me, and one which I absolutely care passionately about, is the grassroots activities. So last weekend, I would have been at Finglas United um, on Saturday afternoon. Uh, Saturday night, I would have been in Maru and Capamore, two clubs in Limerick. Mm. And on Sunday, I would have been in Freebooters opening an artificial pitch. So the biggest part of my time discretionary time if I could call it which I absolutely love is given to the grassroots do we, do we, did we take the eye of the ball a bit John and just from a, someone who's involved in football and, and Kieran as well and in that you know you look at the traditional way um, the player pathway was you know young player played for DDSL club or whatever the good ones got picked up at 15, 16 went over to the UK and essentially the top Premier League clubs trained our kids right obviously now with all the 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 different countries that are, you know, feeding into the Chelsea's and that, that, that really were, are it's tier three clubs that are picking up some of our lads. One in 20 make it, 19 come home, half of them pack it in. You know, uh, ha, you know I know we're trying to address this now, but did we lose time, do you think, in that, you know, that player pathway, we kind of relied on someone else to do it for us. And you know. I, I think the traditional model um, in 
English football, if, we, if we're going to use, use that phrase, was that the best players went across early. Now, I grew up with Shea Brennan, who, um, who came to live in our house. He won a European Cup medal at Manchester United. First English-born player to play for Ireland and um, captain Ireland. You know, So he would have given me the examples. That, look, you just, as a young kid, even though his man was from Carlo, he would have told me examples of when Johnny Giles came over, when Eamon Dunphy went over to Manchester United. That was just the way. What happened in the Premier League then was obviously foreign owners um, came in, foreign players, foreign managers, and it's now a, it's now a global league. That's what it is, and in there it becomes less opportunities for all the players, be they Scottish, Northern Ireland, Welsh, um, the Republic of Ireland. I remember being at the FA Cup final in 1979 when um, Arsenal beat Manchester United 3-2. There was six Irish players on the Arsenal team: three from the Republic, three from the North. Terry Need was manager. But those days have changed and what we've been doing here is we've been changing our approach so that with an under-19 National League and an under-17 National League and an under-15 National League, which are seismic in their changes, these are seismic changes, people said they would never happen, and an under-13 National League coming next year, the best players are playing against the best and we want them to stay longer in Ireland and then go across when they're, when they're um, obviously better educated and better mentally and, and obviously being tested against the best and that, that system we've brought in will ultimately produce better footballers for us over the long haul So John I mean people are wondering when do we get the next Robbie Keane or the next Liam Brady or the next Ronnie Whelan or uh, Damien Duff Well if you look at our under 17s team they did really well at, at, at the Euros in, in England um, they were beaten by the eventual winners Holland who, who won who won the final against Italy they were beaten um, in the quarterfinals obviously under under strange circumstances with the penalty being retaken and all that came with that so there's good young players coming through and you only need a couple and there's no doubt that with the systems that Rude Doctor has brought in here and the changes we brought with the Airtricity League and the underage um, structures with the calendar season again a seismic change you know, changing from the August to May calendar, to May season, to going from February to, to, to November. These are big changes in Irish football, very positive changes. They might go be implemented quietly in yeah. many, many ways, but they're for the long-term good of Irish football. And I've no doubt when you bring in a calendar season and underage leagues like we've brought in, I think 168 international matches we played last year, 168. So there's no doubt with those changes that we will produce um, better footballers over a continuous period of time. John, a couple of governance issues. Your salary has been in the spotlight for a number of years now. I think it's 360000 a year. Yep. Um, it's reported that you get about 100 k a year from uh, UEFA for your role with UEFA. Uh, and a lot of people sort of question that amount of money. I, I, I think it's uh, it's probably more than, you know, um, the head of the GA and the head of the RFU uh, gets, etc. Um, a lot of people would would sort of question uh, that level of salary for an organisation like the FAI? Well, I mean, all, all I can say, that's what my salary is paid. That's what my employers pay me. Uh, it's been paid for quite a period of time. I was paid more at one stage and I took a reduction. Uh, I give every day of my life towards the organisation, be it at grassroots level, be it at executive level or whatever it would be. And we've taken the organisation forward that period with the support of the board, with the support of the council and the support of grassroots. And I've outlined to you today that we now have a turnover of 49 million euros. We've built the Aviva Stadium, we've done the National Academies and all the other positive changes we've made. It's a very good salary, but it's what I'm paid and that is that is my salary. And I'm very grateful for it. But you know what? Um, Does it irk you that it's so much in the spotlight? It's not an issue for me any personally anymore. It's been something that, that has been commented on you know, for, for, for a long period of time. Um, as I said, you know, during the financial crisis, we took a reduction at that period of time. I'm well paid, and you know what? 
it's my employers pay me that money. I've been offered jobs in excess of that in the past. Really? Uh, absolutely. But that's, no, that's not accurate. <laughs> not, by, <laughs> not by the Irish Times, I can tell you. Not by the Irish Times. Oh, I can guarantee that. <laughs> not by the Irish Times. But I have. And I love, the, I love working in Irish soccer. I love the game. I love making the changes we've done. And uh, it's a good salary, but it, 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 it's, sure. it's not the easiest job to work Just, just, just on, on the issue of gender balance then, because we have this whole Me Too thing and, you know, there's a big focus on gender pay equality and so on and so forth. And uh, football, soccer has been a male-oriented, uh, male-dominated sport for many, many years. But there's going to be pressure on, isn't there, to uh, bring women more into it? And I know we've had uh, some success on the field with our, uh, our women's teams and our underage teams and so forth. But at, at a... At a corporate level, if you like, um, how is the FAI going to address that issue? Well, we are. I mean, I, I mean, we we are and have been for for, for many many years. Um, many, I think, when I took over as chief executive, we had nine thousand registered girls playing soccer. Now we have twenty five thousand registered girls. The senior international team on the appointment, Colin Bell, Colin has been a really really big appointment for us. I'm pretty sure he qualified for us a major tournament at some stage. That's really important to us, so that the girls, the international team. Um, our heroes for the young grassroots girls. Uh, last year, we brought um, the first woman to the FAI board. We're a board now of 11 people. There's 25,000 registered girls, about a quarter million registered boys. So that's a very good representation model. Uh, on my uh, senior exec, there are three, there are three women, um, head of legal, uh, head of HR, and head of business partnerships. And our whole aim here every day is to get more girls involved in our sport in total. And we've demonstrated that because just the examples I've given you are clear examples. That, that's what we're doing. And so look, 13 years is a, is a, is a good stint. What, what's, what's next for John Delaney, is it? Do you have an ambition to be a wife for president? Uh, no, I have no ambitions for, for anything like that. I didn't even have an ambition uh, up until recently to, 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 to get on the board of UEFA. And then when, when, when people were saying to me, well, why don't you run? Um, and when I decided um, with Emma that I would run because it's a big commitment to, to, to go around and, and put yourself up for a candidature. And there was 55, obviously, votes. I got 48, came second. I was very proud of that. So, I mean, there's no ambitions barred to, to just develop the game in Ireland. That, that's the most important thing. And to keep developing the game and keep the energy around the organisation, be there good days, be there tough days. I think the, the real ambition I'd love to see happen with the international team, I'd love us to, to, to qualify for Euro 2020 and host two games in Dublin. That would be something really special for Irish football and for the organisation. John Delaney, thank you very much. Thanks, Cheers, guys. John. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, Mick, we should say that since uh, that interview, that whole issue around the PFEI fund has been resolved. The FEI has decided now that it's going to pay the 300000 into this fund itself. Uh, I wouldn't say the controversy has gone away, but I suppose it's dealt with the issue in the short term. Yeah, and I think it, it makes full sense. Like uh, I think when you read it on the day, um, to expect the Players uh, Association um, who, to, who, who, with a very small turnover, who are funded by players, uh, to actually pay players' wages when in, in, a, in a crisis, I think doesn't make any sense. And I think sensible decisions come the FAI are going to fund that pot. Yeah, sure. Now, just <coughs> in terms of the FAI's uh, finances, were you impressed by what he had to say, particularly around the stadium debt? There was a huge stadium debt there at one time, obviously approaching 90 million. 
Um, they, they say they have it below 30 now and it'll be 20 next year and they could pay it off by 2020 if they want. At a high level, I think the um, the look the the, the debt is down um, significantly. Um, probably could be more. How did it get into the debt in the first place? Obviously, is a question that that's still being asked. Um, their turnover seems to be stable, um, and they have a big commercial pot from sponsorship and, and TV money. So uh, on the surface, the the finances seem to be in control and on the right track. Yeah. What about uh, player development? Finally. Uh, are you encouraged? I mean, you're somebody who was involved in uh, soccer many years ago. I think he played underage for Ireland many moons ago. Uh, are, are you encouraged that the right structures are in place for uh, proper player development and that we might be, uh, uh, you know, a new generation of Robbie Keynes or Damien Duffs or Liam Brady's or whatever uh, will actually come along in the coming years? I think I think what's in place now is, is 100 times better than what was in place 10 years ago. But I think I think this country has, has lost a decade of player development. You know, our squad, international squad, you look at where they come from, a lot of players that weren't, uh, born and raised here and that's that's not anything against the granny rule it's just that they're not coming through our system it's a very competitive marketplace here as well for kids playing loads of different sports I think having a a, a player pathway that you can play for a League of Ireland club on a better way of saying it from under 10 all the way through keeps the players in elite uh, development and that the clubs can bring them the whole way through to senior senior football so to speak it's going to have similar to what happened in rugby where you went provincial system and went, moved away from the clubs it's going to have a devastating effect on the big traditional clubs like the you would think clubs, the yeah. Stellas yeah, the, and the, the home farms the Cherry Orchards and, so and the Belvedere's how, how, how that's going to work I, I just don't know because what's happening now is that Shamrock Rovers and Cork and these are de facto now the big schoolboy clubs as well but I think you know you look what Rovers are doing in particular with, with their players coming through and they're keeping their players in the city to more kids staying at home and then they're going across more mature and probably better footballers than they were at 15, 16. And unfortunately for us, what happened back 30, 40 years ago was that the English clubs basically trained and coached our best players and they, they were going to elite clubs and we were producing the Liam Brady's and the Frank Stapletons and so on. But we're not doing that anymore. Yeah, okay. All right, listen, we'll see how that plays out. That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to John Delaney. Uh, research was by Dan O'Neill and Kieran McSweeney of Teneo PSG. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. And don't forget that you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. And I'm Mick O'Keefe. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.